to the latest Fifth podcast. Today I'll be talking to Darren Ray, CEO of Fifth Step, about the five pillars of a modern regulated business. Now, now modern businesses, they're more regulated today than they ever have been. Uh, and despite political campaign speeches in both the US and Europe, there seems to be little change in the landscape for as far as you I can see. So today, Darren, what is the first pillar of a modern regulated business? Well, you're right, Chris. Um, there is more regulation and there's more aspects that businesses need to um, to look at. And as you say, we've divided them down into a pillars. Now, the first one is cost. Now, businesses have always needed to look at cost. But ever since 2008, those who are particularly highly regulated have had a greater uh, focus than ever before particularly financial services for obvious reasons, um, you know, the 2008 uh, uh, troubles, let's call them, um, you know, very much focused around financial services. And the recession that uh, that followed was very much, um, you know, blamed on uh, the financial services sector and, and in some in- instances and aspects, the, their lack of controls. Mm. So the organisations that are doing well in the, these kind of areas, um, they are those that are able to focus on deploying their resources effectively and efficiently, um, and that they can actually evidence doing so. Now, some organisations are looking at uh, innovation, but actually it's far more who are still um, not going too far away, let's say from the, the traditional places of you know, cost-cutting and efficiency. So it's important to recognise that, but also to recognise that even when you're concentrating on efficiency, a good uh, innovation program uh, and looking at you know, research and development can actually help you. As long as it's well deployed and focused around your um, your strategic objectives, you can actually drive cost out by uh, implementing um, a well-implemented and uh, well-managed innovation program. Yeah. You have to be. You have to be very careful, don't you? I remember I was speaking. I was to a professor actually from Cass Business School recently, um, who, who mentioned that people who are innovators in, say, financial services, they have to be careful because they might be thinking that they're getting something just a little bit wrong, uh, which you know, steps over the boundaries in terms of like regulation, uh, and they don't think the regulator is going to come down to hold them. But even getting something a little bit wrong could lead to a fairly major repercussions, couldn't it? You're absolutely right, um, Chris, and that's a uh, that's a, a very good and unplanned segue into uh, into the second pillar. Actually, I'm I'm actually quite impressed. It's almost as if you uh, you read and uh, understand what we talk about here, Chris. It's quite okay. quite stunning. I've been known to read the odd paragraph or two. <laughs> um, well, the uh, the next pillar is actually control, um, and right. it's the controls that stop organisations. Um, stumbling into doing things, um, uh, you know, incorrectly or inappropriately. So, um, controls these days have many, many different forms, and it really stems from uh, a lot of the regulation that was implemented, um, you know, back in the early two thousands with, um, you know, the Sarbanes Oxley Act in, in, you know, predominantly in the US. Now, with that came a whole heap of um, requirements for controls and for the ability to actually demonstrate in evidence that. Um, you know, um, organisations were making profit and all those kind of things. But without going too deeply into those things, um, implementing good controls um, and being able to evidence that you've actually got these controls in place and are running things in an appropriate manner is actually the big 
aspect. Many organizations are doing the right things, uh, but they can't necessarily evidence it quite as well um, as, um, as they might need to or might want to. Now, those who are really moving forward in this area and really able to make the, uh, the, take the next steps are those who are able to um, implement their controls just into the DNA of the way that their organization works. So implementing those controls uh, so they're fully automated. Now, there's dangers and challenges around doing that too, okay, in that if you implement these controls too strictly or in a way that isn't flexible enough, um, then um, that implementation may constrain your business when it needs to change or when the controls need to change or when regulation changes in the future. So organizations need to implement controls. They need to implement them automatically or you know, so they're part of their workflows, um, but they need to do so in a way that can be easily changed or decoupled um, for future use to make sure they've got the flexibility and agility that, that businesses still need, even though they need to be uh, controlled and evidencing the control. Who, who is the person who's uh, generally going to be responsible for uh, developing and building these controls in, internally, or is, it, is this more something that an external provider uh, should be brought in to oversee? Presumably, internal uh, people sometimes they, they might not be able to see the wood for the trees, perhaps. Whereas you know, an external provider could probably provide that kind of like service. That, that's true, Chris. Um, certainly, an external provider can see the. Um, you know the wood for the trees to you know quote one of our previous podcast titles I think it was was it a blog title one of the two and um, certainly that's uh, that's true um, but very often organizations are going to want to look at this themselves first uh, because they understand their controls they understand their business they may, may need some specific help and some specific guidance um, uh, to make some changes but they should be able to look at this uh, themselves in the first instance as to who is going to be implementing these controls it could be a number of different um, you know, roles or responsibilities depending on the organisation. But very often it will be uh, the chief, chief operation officer may be involved. The chief risk officer um, uh, will be involved if an organisation has uh, one of those kinds of people. Um, even the CFO, depending on the nature of the organisation. The key, though, and the common thing, as you'll notice there from what I've just said, is it's got uh, C-suite sponsorship and uh, C-suite control. Too. Okay. So compliance is a major aspect of this. What, what, are, what are the clients, the compliance aspects that you need to look at? Yeah, you're absolutely right, um, Chris. And um, it's such a major part of running a business now, being being compliant. That you've got, um, you know, you've got many organisations who have got people who full time looking at um, which. Uh, rules and regulations they need to be complying with and this only gets more complicated if you're an international business and you're you know looking in one uh, region to implement um, something that you may not need to implement in another region now most of these don't contradict each other actually the regulators are getting very good at working with one another to make sure that they, they don't um, um, you know, tread on each other's toes, but that doesn't mean they're actually helping um, everyone all of the time uh, to uh, implement these um, in the easiest way. There is a lot of crossover, though, or increasing amounts of crossover. So that is something that organisations need to, um, to to look at. And that's, you know, to answer your question, Chris, of what those organisations who are doing this best are actually doing. It's really about implementing a compliance framework. Um, you know, something that. Uh, allows organisations to implement the, requir the requirements from multiple regions. And 
reusing and adapting controls where they've got um, existing controls, um, you know, adapting them so that they're applicable to um, the new region, leaving them the same in the existing region, you know, where that's appropriate. You know, don't don't go belts and braces on this stuff, um, you know, yeah. um, unless you have to, and um, also be proportionate in how you're implementing it. You know, don't uh, don't uh, platinum plate some of this stuff when actually just implementing it is uh, is the right thing to do. But organisations who are implementing it holistically with a, a common compliance framework are those who are actually um, able to do this well and to be that little bit more um, uh, uh, adapt it, you know, uh, can adapt that little bit more. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So what are, what are the first steps in, in starting to build that framework? Okay, so the first steps are typically around understanding the regions. Um, so if you've got someone who's um, uh, in place full-time, they're going to understand the regulatory requirements. They're going to understand many of the crossovers between those, and it's actually identifying those crossovers first of all. Um, second thing is understanding the regions that you're not in at the moment, but that you're going to be in. So if you're presently just in Europe, but you're going to be expanding to North America or to Asia, understanding what the differences in regulatory and compliance requirements are, um, you know, the regional um, differences. It's also um, about understanding what's in the pipeline, you know, what's coming down the pipe, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, as in um, you know, the data protection regulation that's uh, coming in in Europe, for example, for GDPR. Um, if you understand yeah. that that's got to be in place in you know at the end of May you know 2018, um, knowing that's coming down the pipe uh, means that if you're implementing uh, data protection for another region, then actually you can start to look at that framework and um, you know set the foundations in place uh, that are going to be useful for your GDPR implementation. Um, at a later date, is there a, um, a sort of a framework in Asia for sort of data protection and regulation? I mean, we've talked a lot about you know the impending GDPR, and obviously there's, there's data protection in, in the US. But I've never really mentioned, I've never heard you mention before whether or not China, or Asia, whether they standards and frameworks are they, or are they just relying on the Europeans and the US? Um, uh, yes, there are uh, there are countries um, in Asia who have got uh, data protection requirements. Um, uh, the Philippines, uh, for example, we looked at um, their regulation um, uh, uh, for a client, yeah. and um, a lot of it actually makes references back or um, has uh, similarities to some of the European uh, regulation. Other regions will um, have some have things that. Um, you know, take their key, their cues rather from um, uh, U.S. regulation. So there are yeah. some, there are some big players in the market. Um, you know, in terms of data protection, um, actually a lot of that does come back to to Europe. Euro European data protection is seen as the um, the gold standard in in many respects. Um, but but that gold standard isn't appropriate to to all countries and regions. So you know, Bermuda has taken uh, taken that and adapted it slightly. The Philippines have taken it and adapted it slightly. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But understanding that framework, understanding what's coming down the pipeline, um, are uh, are absolutely key. And that's something that external um, providers you know um, can help you with. Absolutely. The people will need to be prepared to brace themselves for a lot of change, aren't, aren't they, really? I mean, uh, businesses are basically going to have to adapt to changing conditions. What are they going to need to do to, to achieve that aim? 
Yeah, you're right. And the, the pace of change, Chris, has, um, you know, has, has sped up. You know, uh, I know, uh, you know, to some degree, it's uh, perhaps a factor of uh, a feature of getting older that you seem to, you know, see uh, more, uh, more change and change seems to happen that more, that, that bit uh, quicker but we've actually got data to evidence the fact uh, yeah, that there's policemen, more policemen seem to be a lot younger these days I have to say uh, well you have more experience uh, with the police than I do Chris so uh moving moving on quickly um yeah we've got evidence to to show that organizations uh, change agendas are actually larger now than um uh, than they have been and they're they're expecting to implement more change and more quickly and more efficiently and that's absolutely the key thing um organizations only have a finite number of resources and they need to be uh, corralled and steered and deployed uh only on the projects that are right so implementing project governance is actually one of those big aspects um, it sounds very formal but what it's really about is um, helping organizations recognize the, the the projects or the programs that are closely aligned or more closely most closely aligned with their strategic objectives and ensuring that the resources are you know deployed on those projects and that those projects are actually delivering too yeah. um, so understanding when a project becomes troubled understanding what needs to be done and that includes being able to reach out for help uh, because not all troubled projects can actually be fixed from the inside. Sometimes they're, they're too troubled for that. That may mean that you, that you actually need to cancel the project and um, you know, regroup around it. Or it may need, mean that you need um, you know, project res uh, rescue expertise uh, from, exter you know, from an external uh, viewpoint. Someone who's not uh, caught up in the internal uh, politics or, or bag baggage associated with the project as it exists today. Yeah. So can you have, uh, is, is there a particular me methodology that you'd recommend uh, for this sort, of, this sort of thing? No, not at all, actually. Um, the Implementing any project, project methodology um, uh, is an important step. If you implement that methodology, then what it gives is a, a common vocabulary. Um, uh, so all project managers understand how they're working, what they mean by certain terms. And it also means that if a project manager has to be uh, replaced for any reason, um, there's not so much of a learning curve when that new project manager comes on board or uh, you know takes on the, uh, the new project um, because they're working to a same standard and they're using the same language to mean the same thing. Um, and you'll be amazed at what a difference that can actually make uh, for projects. So um, implementing any methodology, whether it be ISO um, I can't remember the name of the ISO one now. Um, ISO standard for project management um, slips my mind for a moment. But whether it's PMO or the ISO one, um, uh, sorry, PMI or the ISO one, um, or indeed Prince Two, uh, whichever one is more appropriate to your uh, to your region. Or for some large organisations, obviously they have an in-house standard that may be based on one of the other methodologies. But having that single standard gives you common vocabulary and allows people to actually know what they're doing and where they're, uh, where they're going with things. How, how do you start to recognise a, a troubled project? Is, are there some telltale signs? Is, it, is there a way of automating that process that you know when something's going wrong? Or is it, is it a question of being sim you know, simple human experience? It, it tends to be a combination of both or can be a combination of both. Um, certainly for organisations that are, are mature in their project uh, management capability, if they've got uh, a project management office or a PMO 
um, service. Uh, you know, if they're buying that from a um, uh, from an organisation, perhaps like Fifth Step, I'm, I, you know, I'm, I might uh, I might suggest um, if they are doing that. Um, then they'll be capturing a lot of data about their organisation and and the projects that are underway. And there are telltale signs: um, the projects or tasks running late, um, progress not being met um, at the anticipated uh, times, uh, requests for change, um, uh, the pace of requests for change increasing or being uh, dramatically higher than expected. Um, those kind of things are some of the telltale signs of a, of a project that needs some additional help or support. Now, when I say support, it may just be that the project sponsor needs to be getting a little bit closer to the project and helping the project manager and supporting the project manager in what they're doing. Um, it may just be as simple as that. Or it may be um, that actually the project is troubled. You know, Perhaps the requirements weren't gathered uh, suitably in uh, suitable detail at the beginning, um, or perhaps the goalposts have changed. Perhaps the organisation has changed or its requirements have changed during the course of the implementation, for example. Yeah, I suppose it's probably a good... So if we, I'm thinking if we could provide any examples to the people who are, who are listening to this podcast. I mean, with cyber, obviously we've talked a lot about cyber over the last couple of years, um, but you know, cyber is, going, is rising rapidly up the boardroom agenda, so how would you build um, you know, a project around that in terms of you know, understanding the regulatory risks? Well, you're right. I mean, cyber you know, cyber's really that, that, fifth, um, that fifth pillar. Um, uh, but you're right. Uh, uh, implementing a cyber program um, you know, it needs to start simply. Uh, I mean, and there's, uh, I, I think there's three things that organisations need to do around their cyber. And you know, we've, t- we've spoken about some of these before, but you know, if there's... Three things that I would suggest organisations need to do if they're not doing anything on this um, at all at the moment is, you know, and I always say this, um, you know, do a cyber assessment. Understand where you are. Um, understanding where you need to get to is a lot easier if you know where you are. You know, if you know how you're performing in a certain way, you know, where you're strong and where you're weak, actually it starts to chunk the, the, the job up. Uh, into a lot more bite-sized and manageable um, chunks. Even if the chunks remain big, even if you've got a lot to do, actually now you've got the evidence that you've got a lot to do, rather than it just being, oh, we've got too much to do, we can't think about that now. This is something yep. that needs to be thought about. So um, uh, you know, do a cyber um, assessment, and, and coupled very closely with that, raise awareness. Raise awareness amongst your staff of, um, of information security and cyber security. Um, so... Go on, you were going to say. When, when you when when you've done cyber assessments, say um, with you know with clients uh, uh, in the say insurance sector, then what are the what are the common things that you come across? You know, say over the last two or three months when you've gone in and done them, what what are the failings that you've found commonly? There are many. The, there are organisations. Um, okay, I don't think there's one particular thing that the organisations are not doing organizations have different strengths and different weaknesses um i guess one common uh, factor is though that when they self-assess as i guess we all do you know if you if you do a self-assessment actually you score yourself a little bit higher and sometimes <laughs> that sometimes that is just simply because um they're being optimistic uh, you know oh we're going to implement that aspect in a month's time um 
And uh, so we'll score ourselves as, as if we've done it because we plan to do it. Now, that's great. If it actually gets implemented in a month's time, then perhaps it's you know no harm, no foul. But the trouble is that those things don't always get implemented. And then organizations have to come back and say, all right, well, we said we've done that. And uh, now we're still scoring low on in, you know, in that area when um, an outside assessment is actually done as opposed to a, uh, an internal assessment. Okay. Are actually businesses beginning to take this seriously, though, now? I mean, in the past, there have been all sorts of surveys that show that, you know, 80% of businesses or whatever it, whatever the figure was the last time I read, 80% of businesses haven't even thought about taking up cyber cyber insurance or, or conducting cyber assessments. Is that starting to change? Yeah, it is starting to change, Chris. It's, it's been a lot longer journey than many of us, um, who know about these things and uh, you know have experience of them um, uh, would have liked or expected, and I don't mean that from you know would have liked from a commercial uh, perspective. Um, yeah. I mean from a um, a perspective of organisations are exposed um, and they haven't been taking um, notice of this. But there's been some major hacks and some major breaches over the last few years. I mean, and, you know the ones that most readily um, you know roll off the top of my head are you know. Um, you know the Sony hack, um, you know the Target um, hack, where uh, there was um, hundreds of millions of credit card um, details were were stolen, and you know in the UK the Talk Talk um, uh, breach of uh, what was that about a year ago, or eighteen months ago now, I guess it was. Um, you know all of those uh, were were big breaches. Um, uh, and big data breaches. Some of them were having financial impact. Uh, some of them having privacy uh, implications, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So boards are asking the right questions of their people and of the of the departments and of the organisations that they're overseeing. Um, they want reassurance that um, the organisations are are safe and protected. And so, you know, you know, the first step being that cyber assessment piece is there to start to set the board's mind at ease that actually something is being done. Um, you know, and they can see where they are. And boards, boards obviously want to um, have good news and uh, you know be reassured that they're a hundred percent green in all areas. But even if um, they're amber or even red in some areas, boards would rather know the truth and actually know they've got work to do than assume they're safe. And then um, you know, then their their organisation's name is the one in you know um, you know in big bold letters on the front of the. Uh, the yeah. newspapers are on the breaking news um, headlines, um, you know, and the last thing they want is uh, as a board member or as a member of the C-suite to be the one rolled out uh, in front of those cameras and flashing lights to say, um, you know, uh, yeah, we, we, you know, we failed. Organisations don't want that. That sounds like I'm, I'm selling it on a fear basis. Uh, you know, those things are fearful, but the, the reasons organisations are looking at this and taking notice is because they don't want that. You started out at the beginning of this. You mentioned that regulation, the burden of regulation, was starting to fall on not, not just on the major organised businesses, you know, the Fortune 500s or whatever, but on smaller, all SME uh, type businesses. Probably as far as I can understand it. But how, if you're if you're a smaller sized company, say 50 to you know 100 million sort of turnover, you haven't got the large deep pockets of a of a major organisation. How can you prepare yourselves against these evolving regulatory burdens? Well, there's a number of ways, Chris. I mean, following some of the advice that we've given here for you know for organisations of all sizes um, can follow the advice that we're talking about here. Um, you know, talking, uh, getting external guidance. Um, you know, obviously, you're listening to a fifth step podcast. You know, come and talk to us. We'll um, help you implement this. 
Um, you know, many of the uh, the ways that Fist Step implement these things are, you know, we aim to be a cost-effective alternative to some, um, you know, some of the other consultancy companies. So, um, you know, we do, um, for example, our cybersecurity assessments uh, are done in a very cost-effective way, and they're done in a way that, um, with the results, uh, your organisation, if it's, if it's got the uh, the bandwidth and the skills and the capability, can go off and implement those changes. If you need additional help and bandwidth, we are more than happy, obviously, to, to continue to help. Uh, but we recognise that organisations don't always have, um, you know, the um, the budgets to be able to uh, run it end to end in that way. So that goes for the same, you know, for any of the uh, the regulatory um, and uh, compliance requirements. Okay. Well, that sounds like a probably a fitting place to, to conclude this latest podcast, I would say. Um, I mean, as you mentioned before, um, you've, you've written a number of times on uh, themes relating to, uh, to re- regulatory uh, requirements. Um, anyone who's listening to this podcast may or may not know that uh, Darren is a fairly prolific blog writer. So if you want to find any of the stuff that he's written over the last year or two, uh, you can find uh, his work on uh, www.com. Uh, fifthstep.com and that's uh, F-I-F-T-H-S-T-E-P.com. Um, I think there are a few other distribution channels you can go to as well, but Darren, you probably know more about that than me. Uh, yeah, um, LinkedIn, obviously. Uh, follow us on LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn. Um, we're on uh, Twitter, um, you know, uh, on social networking as well. Um, and lastly, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, um, you know, feel free to join in. Ask us a question. Um, um, drop us an email. Details are in the um, in the show notes um, um, within your podcatcher, um, or indeed on the blog uh, post um, that's associated with this uh, this podcast. Um, so please do join in. Ask questions. Um, you know, we're more than happy to start um, answering some of those questions in in future blog posts. And indeed, if there's a subject matter you think that's uh, that's something that you'd like to know more about that falls within uh, Fist Step's area of expertise then why not let us know? Um, we're happy to, um, happy to take, uh, uh, take requests. Um, not requests, song requests, because uh, Chris really doesn't have the voice for it. Um, but uh, we're more than happy to, uh, to take those requests. And, and if you are enjoying the podcast, um, please do go to your, uh, whichever podcast service you use, whether it be iTunes or, um, or uh, Google Music or whichever the ones uh, that you're using, um, and please do raise us on there. It really does help us uh, get recognised and help more people um, hear what we've got to say and uh, get the benefit of what we're saying. Excellent. Okay. Well, I think that concludes the latest podcast. Thanks for your time, Darren, and looking forward to the next one. Thanks, Chris.